hi, this is not Arnold, but you should still listen to the 430 Movie podcast at 430movie.com. It's really fun. You'll like it. Hey, I'm Marco A. Altman. And I'm Darren Doctorman. And you are listening to Inglorious Trexperts. Welcome to our new podcast where we'll talk about all things Trek. Well, most things Trek. The stuff that we like, we're going to talk about. The stuff that we like. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, there are a lot of a lot of people talking about Star Trek, but, you know, we're going to bring out some of the great uh, Trexperts, experts, people who worked on the show, people who admired the show, people who just love the show, and... Um, you never know what to expect. This is not a, a show where we're going to review episodes. It's not a show where we're going to sort of march you chronologically through the history of Star Trek. Uh, but it is a show where we celebrate what we love. We celebrate the love. We cel- that's where you're, you're mixing <laughs> metaphors. That's a, that's a Star Wars reference you know, on the Star Trek podcast. Good. It's all good because it all feeds into our wonderful fandom. And, uh, you know, you don't need to ignore everything that you love to... At- Talk about something that you do love. I want to tell you a little something about Darren Doctorman. Darren Doctorman, in addition to being a leading concept artist in Hollywood, was the visual effects supervisor on the Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition, and uh, which was a marvelous, marvelous uh, release of Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, on DVD several years ago, right before Robert Wise passed away. That's correct. And uh, w- it was a, a wonderful thing that you did and contributed to the history of Star Trek by being able to take that film and, quote-unquote, finish it uh, the way that Robert Wise had hoped it to be. I done. was very honored to have been able to work on that project um, with my uh, producing partners, uh, Mike Mattesino and David Fine. We uh, got to work with Robert Wise, and he had never talked about the film for 18 years after it came out because of his experience with the film and with uh, how it was received and how the studio treated him and all sorts of things. And um, he was very uh, quiet about what had happened and he was he felt he was very rushed and he never got the final cut. And so finally when we uh, came to him and uh, proposed this idea, he said, you know, that might be a good idea, and he uh, he looked at it as having a closure on this uh, project that he had uh, put so much effort and time into back in you know uh, 1978 and 79. Um, I, I was at a few of those screenings, one of them particularly at the Directors Guild, uh, yeah. and it was remarkable to see uh, Robert Wise, who I had so much respect for um, from Day the Earth Stood Still sure. and Sound of Music and all the great movies that, that he made over the years, um, to see him finally pleased with uh, the final result on Star Trek The Motion Picture after all those years. The smile on his face uh, at the Paramount premiere that we had for it uh, was so good to see. He was finally uh, at peace with this thing that he wouldn't talk about. Yeah. And it was really great, really yeah. great to be a part of. And then, of course, Darren, you also worked on um, uh, on, on Voyager briefly as well. Well, I, I worked on the pilot for Voyager because they needed some extra stuff done, and uh, poor Rick Sternback was... Uh, was uh, being worked down to the bone, and uh, so I came in for uh, a couple months to uh, help out with things, and that was fun. And uh, I got to uh, I got to be in uh, 
one of the offices above Stage 9 uh, that are featured in uh, Sunset Boulevard, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. And uh, uh, you, you look down and can see the ghosts of Cecil B. DeMille and uh, Gloria <laughs> a lot Swanson. Of a lot, a lot, lot of ghosts. ghosts. Even more now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, it, it, I have to say before we start uh, uh, talking about um, what the show is going to be, um, I first ironically met Darren when he was the host of a radio show, a syndicated radio was a show. a co-host. Okay. That's co-host. co-host which, um, uh, Joyce Mason right. was the host of it, and she uh, also ran uh, Bill Shatner's uh, fan club at the time. And uh, she and her f- uh, a couple of uh, friends started this show called Talk Trek on a local uh, radio station in Southern California, KIEV. And uh, I got involved, and I, uh, me and uh, my uh, friend uh, Dylan Del Gershio at the time, and we you got not in- friends anymore. He passed away. Oh, he passed away. Well, several I guess years you're ago. not. Sorry. No. Well, we still are. Um, but uh, uh, it was uh, it was the craziest kind of. Uh, you know, this was way before the internet started uh, happening, and uh, it was basically a call-in show that crazy people would call in and talk about Star Trek. And it was very uh, wild and wacky and sometimes incredibly boring, but other times really fun because we had amazing guests uh, calling in and appearing in the studio. And one of those guests was Mark A. Altman. The A stands for amazing. That's right. (laughs) That's right. So, yeah, I I mean, I think it was when Rob and I were promoting uh, Free Enterprise. Uh, I think it was before that. It was before. It was even before before Free Enterprise. Because, of course, you're in free enterprise right so um I, I don't know what i was doing there i think you had just done some story you, you, you were you were promoting uh, sci-fi universe oh yeah i was doing a science fiction magazine at the time for larry flint not yeah. that kind of magazine get your mind out of the gutter it was uh, a science fiction magazine for larry flint called sci-fi universe and we were on the the show to promote uh, and uh, that's where i first uh, met uh and Joyce Mason. That's right. But I'm not still friends with Joyce Mason. No, she passed away as well. She did? Yeah. When did that happen? This was about uh, six or seven years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. I had no idea. She was a lovely woman. She was. And, uh, you know, we're all uh, uh, in the Trekkies movie uh, briefly. Mm. Uh, and uh, that was a fun time. And uh, I, I specifically kept my mouth shut and refused to be interviewed for that movie. So Yeah, I'm not a fan <laughs> of that film. And, in fact... Um, you know, it was really funny because when we uh, did Free Enterprise, you have to register titles with the MPA. We had registered the title potentially uh, Trekkers. And mm-hmm. so Paramount could not release Trekkies as Trekkies because we had Trekkers. And they had to come to us to get us to release the title Trekkers in order for them to call their movie Trekkies. Wow. Which we did after wow. making them. Yeah, no, we 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 crazy. We, we, no, it's we crazy how things crazy. work out. Um, but you know, I, I'm not I, you know I'm not a huge fan of that because that sort of leans into that Saturday Night Live depiction of Star Trek fans. Yeah, it makes get fun out of your Star parents' fans. basement. It, it, oh, aren't they weird? It aren't puts they? them in a sideshow, which I think is unfair. And of course, you know that was a big impetus for Free Enterprise when we did Free Enterprise. It's almost 20 years since we did Free Enterprise. It came out in 1999, the week after the Phantom Menace, right. and um, uh, basically. Uh, it was to show that uh, Star Trek fans could be dysfunctional and 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 a little odd, but that they also had a life and right. and uh, you know were not freaks who lived. Well, in the it's basically basement. you know trying to show people as real people. I mean, when they when they show sports fans in uh, in uh, shows, they are actual people and they just are excited about sports. We're excited about other things, and Star Trek is one of them. Yeah, 
That's true. And that's what this show is going to be all about, is about being excited about Star Trek. You know, one of the things, there's a lot of talk of toxic fandom these days and, you know, people who are just, you know, hate everything. You can't please them. You know, Ryan Johnson certainly encountered that with uh, The Last Jedi. Um, to a certain extent, it's happened in Star Trek fandom. But we're really here to celebrate the 50-year mission of uh, the Starship Enterprise and not... Uh, and, and and not not be critical, not be. I mean, there will be times where we'll be snarky because We've that come comes to with the territory. Star Trek, not to bury it. Indeed, <laughs> <laughs> indeed, Mister Caesar. Uh, but um, I will tell you that um, uh, partially, this uh, podcast was inspired by uh, my book uh, with Ed Gross, "The Fifty Year Mission," uh, which was a two volume. Uh, a hardcover edition from St. Martin's Press that came out for the 50th uh, anniversary, the first book which covered the original series through um, the original movies, and then, of course, the second volume, which went from Next Generation all the way through the J.J. movies. And uh, after the success of our podcast, The 430 Movie, we were looking at um, other possibilities, um, because there are always possibilities, as Mr. Spock is fond of saying. Sure. And, uh, you know, Darren and I immediately realized that to have um, a chance to talk about what Star Trek has meant to us over the years, and also bring in our our um, so so many of the people that we know who've worked on the show and have been involved with it over the you know it was a real opportunity. You know, there are a lot of Star Trek podcasts, but not a lot um, that aren't just fan musings. Right. Uh, uh, and 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 that's it's no accident that this podcast is called Inglorious Trexperts because the people that you'll hear from over the coming months are truly Trexperts, people who either um, are industry professionals or people who have um, sort of a soapbox uh, from which to talk about Star Trek that is based on a degree of expertise or knowledge that isn't just uh, someone in their basement talking right. about Star Trek. Right. We're not in a basement. We, we're, we're in a very nice <laughs> recording studio, which is why we're recording it, so we can prove to you that we are not in the basement. We, 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 if we, and if we were in the basement of this building, we would see where um, Jim Morrison recorded L.A. Woman. There you go. So, Which is pretty cool. I know. Um, so anyway, but here, uh, you know, on our first episode, we thought it was only appropriate to talk about the uh, the um, fall of 1987 because right now, we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of new shows premiere. Sure. Um, uh, you know, the, the six people that would not watch network television. Television has changed so dramatically uh, since that uh, fall of 1987. But in in in, in 1987, it was hard to believe, but. Uh, Star Trek came back to television. It came back to life. It was, it was, uh, you know, we had all grown up with the original series and uh, some of the movies by that time. And, of course, uh, Star Trek IV had just come out uh, to huge numbers in the theaters. And the buzz started, you know, going around that there was going to be a new Star Trek show. And I, for one, thought, well, that's, that's going to be interesting. I wonder what they're going to do. Because, you know, it was anyone's guess as to what was going to happen. Finally, um, they announced what the title was going to be, Star Trek The Next Generation. And I thought, huh, well, this could be either really, really good or really terrible. Yeah, I remember that lead up so well, even to this day, um, when they announced. Because, you know, there had been what people forget is. There had been so many near misses. I mean, back in the 70s, it was phase two, and you would read Starlog and think, Star Trek's coming back to television right. with Kirk and David Cutrow. And, 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 and who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's so exciting. Zahn. 
who's up? <laughs> and, uh, and, but it was coming back with everybody. And, and uh, you know, when they were building sets and it seemed right. like this time it was really going to happen. This time it's for sure. Yeah. And then, of course, it didn't happen. The whole thing went to, to Hell in a Handbasket. And instead, uh, they made the first feature, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And then the features were hugely successful. And then Paramount began to realize that, uh, you know, these features can't go on forever. The cast is getting older and more expensive. I just want to talk a little bit about the years between seeing the original show and uh, 87, when Next Generation came out. It was, you know, before the movies, it was really a quiet, bleak time for Star Trek fandom. Uh, but even so, the the grassroots fandom was probably at its highest in terms of creativity and in terms of excitement and in terms of love for this show that went off the air in 1969. Well, it's true because... Um it had not been co-opted by right. the studio, by uh, prof- exploitation. The studio didn't even like it. They didn't like it. They didn't. They I mean, barely realized they had it. They arguably, they don't like it now. In but the, <laughs> <laughs> in the Desilu acquisition, they yeah. had acquired it along with Mission Impossible. Right. And um, they 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 didn't care. And so you had you know your aunt Fanny uh, stitching together. Um, the uh, Tribbles or um, right. uh, something like the Federation Trading Post uh, right. in, in New York, which was a Star Berkeley, Trek store. Yes. And um, it was, uh, they were mocked when they opened right. for uh, a store devoted to only Star Trek. What are you going to sell? Who's going to go? Right. And for a while it was it was on the verge of uh, closing, shuttering. because pe- And then they started advertising on Channel 11 in New York during Star Trek. Right. And they had lines around the block. Well, yeah, and remember, uh, Channel 11 would run Star Trek every night at... Uh, six o'clock. Six o'clock. And that's where I first saw Star Trek, you know. Every night was a new episode. And, of course, I had watched the uh, animated show on Saturday mornings on NBC, uh, starting in 73 and 74. And so it was it, it was all brand new to me because uh, I had never seen it before, and I loved it, every minute of it. And in or- it, when I first saw, went to the Federation Trading Post in New York, my dad took me, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a place for people like me. And th- there were very few kids who liked Star Trek or s- certainly talked about it in grade school. Um, and so I was basically on an island of my own. And seeing this uh, wide-open world of people who loved this show was completely world expanding mm. and uh, it uh, it made me feel a connection with people that I didn't even know. Well, I'll tell you something very embarrassing that I've never admitted before. But Uh-oh. the first time I went to the Federation Trading Post, they had these giant six foot posters you put on the back of sure. your door of, your door, of yeah. all the principal cast. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm mortified to admit, now I was very young clearly and had not quite found uh, my way in life, but I bought a six foot poster not of Captain Kirk, not of Bill Shatner, my hero and friend, but uh, of Leonard and Mr. Spock. Oh, for a second, I thought you were going to say Chekhov. Oh, no. The, Even I was not that pathetic nothing, in nothing, middle school. Look, there's nothing to be ashamed of about having a six-foot-tall picture of Mr. Spock. They were in the transporter room. It was pretty cool. I, I remember it well. Yeah. I still have, I have the poster of all of them still. From those days that my dad bought for me, of them all standing in the transporter room, from the third season, because you can tell by the shirts, uh, but it was it was such a pure, uh, joyous time, because as you said, it hadn't 
been co-opted. It hadn't been, uh, you know, they hadn't brought in the ringers from TV to say, hey, you like Star Trek, so do I. Everything's great. You know, (laughs) it it wasn't the the sort of fake BS that sometimes uh, we see. Um, It was all real. And it was just so pure. And sometimes I yearn for those days of, uh, you know, being one of, you know, maybe two people in the school who even knew about Star Trek. Sure. And, you know, I'll tell you uh, one of the things that uh, also, and, and, and I want to step on because we're going to do a future episode on the merchandising yeah. uh, and sort of growing up with, with, you know, and the evolution of that merchandising. But uh, there was um, the poster book series, Absolutely. which were these great, you know, magazines that would unfold into a poster. Mm-hmm. And um, they did about 12, 12 or 13 episodes of those. I know uh, Doug Drexler was involved with Absolutely. that very early in his career, who also worked at the, um, at the, Federation at the training post. post. Yeah. And he tells this wonderful story, and perhaps we should have had him as a guest because he tells it obviously better than I, how one day uh, it was raining, humid in New York, and he had glasses at the time, and he had to run out and get lunch or something for them. And his glasses are all fogged over, and he comes in the rain, huddled, you know, underneath a, you know, uh, an umbrella, and you know, or a sweatshirt cover, you know, comes in, and you know, he runs in with the with the food, and bumps into this man. He says, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry." He looks up, and he's sort of wiping his glasses, and it's Gene Roddenberry. And he said, "I wanted to see what all the fuss was about." That is amazing. And I, I just, I, I love that story. And apparently, you know, he walked around and checked it out because it wasn't licensed or right. anything like that. And at the time, he was the only one who wanted to make money off his of Star right. Trek, and he approved. And he thought it was really great. And he said, "You're treating the fans well, and this is a great store." And of course, they had all these homemade miniatures they built, mm-hmm. like the the keeper and the the, the captain's chair, and right. the, the and and uh, you know, sort of Gene Roddenberry gave it his uh, thumbs up. Of so approval. I'm guessing this is probably around 76 or 77. Probably, yeah. Um, so Gene was probably in the midst of trying to either get Phase 2 or one of the movies going. So this was the time when he was trying to get excitement about Star Trek back, you know, in the mainstream again. Well, you know, Gene was so great at, I mean, you know, long before social media, long before... Um, uh, marketing and you you know you, you would hire a, a phalanx of publicists to help you roll stuff out uh, about knowing how to work the fans and create a groundswell of support um, even going back to when they made the original cage pilot which you know he screened at uh, you know the, the, a sci-fi convention and what was it Cleveland or st. Louis right. and uh, they just shown Irwin Allen's the time tunnel and the fans were all like oh not another Irwin Allen piece of garbage and then Gene came and he had set up this fashion show of, of props from Star Trek right. and um, costumes. costumes and, uh, you know, basically, you know, screened the cage and got people so excited about Star Trek and about the show. And um, and he kept going back to the fans and using them like his own, you know, personal army because uh, even, you know, the famous story, which is somewhat apocryphal about how the fans saved Star Trek and it would groundswell, you know, he was giving them money for postage yeah. and giving them and, you know, helping advise them. And say, I had nothing to do with telling NBC. Yeah. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, no, but secretly he was leading them from the front office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it, it's an amazing thing. I went and saw Gene Roddenberry uh, at one of his uh, college uh, lecture tours mm. in early 1976 at Kane College in uh, New Jersey. I'd ask you what he said, but we happen to have Gene Roddenberry right here. 
Well, I said a lot of things back then, and uh, not not all of them have uh, come out to be uh, true or even uh, or even uh, well funny. But um, the thing is, uh, back then Star Trek was still uh, a, uh, a an unmoving body, and we were trying the to the first time Gene ever dealt with unmoving body. We we were trying to resuscitate it as best we could, and I certainly was trying to uh, uh, get as much. Uh, uh, out of it as I could, and uh, I would take uh, the 16 millimeter prints of the cage and uh, and the famous blooper reel that Leonard was so upset about, uh, and I showed them to the uh, these large audiences, and they uh, of course loved every minute of it, and and I talked about how it was bringing Star Trek to life, and how I'd hoped that Star Trek could come back soon, and and. Uh, uh, and uh, have a new life in movies or on television again. You know what? What's incredible because we talk about that era and how uh, you know it was an innocent, more innocent time and less uh, exploitation of the property. The big thing uh, was the inside Star Trek record album, which was a spoken word album. Yeah, that with G- Gene Roddenberry, uh, uh, DeForest Kelly, uh, Mark Leonard. And Bill Shatner, yeah, yeah. as guests yeah. that he that he would interview. That's where I got my Gene Roddenberry impersonation from. You mean that wasn't Gene Roddenberry? It, it wasn't Gene I Roddenberry. Thought we were channeling Unfortunately, him. Unfortunately, he was gone. He was gone for some time, but he lives on through me sometimes. <laughs> um, I, I I'm happy to say that uh, um, that uh, I am able to drive certain ex Star Trek writers insane with my. Gene Roddenberry impersonation, and they they have told me that if I do it in front of them again, they will punch me in the nose, and that is not Harlan Ellison. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it it was it was such a, a strange kind of thing to listen to Gene Roddenberry, you know, basically just talking to uh, Mark Leonard. Tell me more about uh, Sarek and and about the history of uh, Vulcan uh, uh, philosophy, and it was. Sort of intimate, but also sort of fake. It was it was a, a strange mix of both. Yeah. But it's it's astonishing. You yeah. can still find it uh, uh, available some places. Yeah, but it's on CD. They reissued it on CD with a new introduction by Nichelle Nichols. Right. About ten, fifteen years ago. Something I think. like that. Um, you know what's really interesting about the history of that album is it was produced uh, by a guy named Ed Naha. Ed Naha is the guy who wrote The Science Fictionary, uh, which is a book when we were kids. But more importantly, more germane to the story, is he was the A&R guy on Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. Wow. So he goes from Springsteen to, you know, but he was a huge Star Trek fan. So so when he goes to Sony, Columbia Records, and says, hey, I want to do this Star Trek thing with Gene Roddenberry, they think he's out of his mind. Maybe he was. He he had a little juice (laughs) from, you know, the whole Springsteen thing. Wow. And he ends up uh, uh, befriending uh, Gene and and getting Gene to do the thing. And then they had to convince Shatner to do it. And he tells a story about how how, Shatner just breezes into the recording session like three hours late in his tennis whites. You know, he's like... And they said, so this is what we're going to do. And then he just wants to talk about what he wants to talk about because right. that's Bill. And uh, it's a great story. And then Ed Naha, you know, years later went on to clear uh, the music for the Pioneer, the album that was on the uh, the famous album oh, the, that the, went into space. went into space. On, on, the, on the Pioneer, on the Pioneer. probe. Wow. And uh, literally they had to clear the music as sure. though in case aliens get right. it, you got to make sure you're paying royalties to the artists. That's right. 
I, I mean, it's a crazy... Well, yeah, uh, royalties in the known universe. That means yeah, yeah, something. Right. In this case, <laughs> right, the, the legal clause that's in all contracts, <laughs> in this or any known universe, it actually means something. That, that's funny. I, I have just a little story about Shatner's involvement with this album. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, go to the... Um, Star Trek original series set tours in upstate New York at the beginning of this year when Shatner came and appeared uh, and toured the sets and uh, and had a, a very nice uh, sort of intimate uh, group of like 25 people sitting around the bridge while Shatner sat in the captain's chair and basically just, uh, you know, uh, talked for an hour. And I got to ask him a question and I asked him, um, Bill, back in back in the day before the movies, you did this album with Gene Roddenberry. Um, I didn't see any recollection in his eyes <laughs> that he had, had in fact done this. But uh, I said, and Gene asked you a question, uh, and it was, how much of Bill Shatner is Captain Kirk and vice versa? And Shatner says, uh, what did I say? And I said, well... You said, and I avoided doing the Shatner impersonation for him. Um, I Lies. said, uh, well, uh, some parts of, uh, of Captain Kirk I would like to be. Uh, I think uh, a lot of Captain Kirk is what I am. And uh, some of the parts of Bill Shatner that I don't like, I try to keep out of Captain Kirk. And, uh, and he says, uh, well, that sounds like a great answer. LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, and then, so I asked him, how would you answer that now, after all these years of Star Trek and all the years that have passed since then? And he said, uh, well, that's a good question. I think now, I am Captain Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, everyone roared in the bridge, and it was, uh, it was a great moment. And, you know, there's sort of a, a meta irony to that because, of course, in Free Enterprise, Free Enterprise you play that's, Shatner's that's my line. doppelganger <laughs> and you say, I am Captain Kirk. Uh, and, and, then, and then we reveal Shatner reveal on Shatner stage rapping. rapping with the rated R. But that's a story for another podcast. Um, you know, next year Free Enterprise celebrates its 20th anniversary. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. And the other thing I think we should talk about, and I, I, I didn't have this on my list for upcoming episodes, is the fan film phenomena. You talk about James Cawley. And I think it's fascinating, whatever you think of the films, um, that people would go out and spend their own money and their mm -hmm. time and their passion and create these things when they don't own the rights. Right. And I'm not talking about that in a negative way, just that, um, you know, whether it be James or, or, or um, the guys who did Star Trek, you put, you know, tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands into these uh, um, fan films. And it's a really fascinating thing to but look it's, at. It's all related to the creative energy in the fan community. Mm. And I think that in those early years before it was policed, uh, there was so much uh, creative energy put into fanzines, uh, individual works of art, yeah. uh, conventions, uh, and uh, you know, uh, radio plays and and uh, you know, Super 8 movies and all sorts of things. That it was an explosion of fan creativity. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, you know, you talk about that early, the early fanzines, and I really used to enjoy when I would go to the conventions. My parents would drop me and my friends off at the conventions, sure. and they weren't going. Right, and uh, and. Uh, I, you know, you go and you go to the dealer's room. It was all homemade. There was very few. Yeah. I mean, other than the, the Bantam paperbacks, there was very little. And, you know, you purchased the, buy these fanzines, and there were the stories and people writing about the episodes. And, of course, there were those books like The Best of Trek, which were had these generic covers in which um, 
they uh, would write about you know favorite episodes or very much it was like a podcast on paper right and uh, you know it was always from the pages of Trek magazine but I never could find Trek magazine I right. could only find the best of Trek books um, but uh, yeah how, we, you know it's so funny because I mean here we set out to talk about uh, next generation and the, the the birth of next generation but this is all I think the foundation on which next generation right. is built and this and, this. This completely affected our reactions to Next Generation, certainly when it came out and, and later on. Well, it was really interesting because there definitely was this passionate, vociferous uh, group of fandom, not unlike what happens now with quote-unquote toxic fandom, which is right. magnified through the Internet, where they're saying, if you don't, without Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, you don't have me. People were, were outraged that they would do a Star Trek series with a new cast right. and a new Enterprise. Um, do you remember how you felt? I remember being very excited until there was an article in Starlog where they put everyone's headshots, mm-hmm. and it was about the casting of the roles, and it announced, you know, playing Captain John Luke Picard is Patrick Stewart, who I'd seen in Excalibur and, sure. and I Claudius, but Life Force, you, Life Force, yes, yeah, <laughs> indeed I did, and uh, although I remembered Matilda May more than yes. Patrick Stewart, but um, but I, I will say that um, uh, you know I was underwhelmed by uh, you know there was no one who was really. Uh, who, I think I, I first saw that uh, that group photo on, was it Newsweek maybe or Time? Right. Uh, and I remember thinking, okay, well, this certainly looks different. Um, I'm, I'm willing to give it, you know, give it a chance because this is supposed to be, you know, much later than Star Trek. And, and you know, it is Gene Roddenberry there. So we'll see. Uh I was lucky enough because uh, a couple of my friends in film school at the time had access to one of the uh, series Bibles mm. that uh, that were put together by Dorothy Fontana and uh, David Gerald. And David Gerald. Yeah. Um, and I got to read it. I got to have a copy of it. And, of course, it had some pictures that Andy Probert had drawn of the uh, bridge and of the, the new Enterprise. And I have to say that my first reaction was... Huh. Okay. Not exactly thrilled about the new Enterprise, but, you know, I'll give it a chance. We'll see. And actually, <laughs> a funny thing is, during the first couple of episodes, uh, there was a lot of, you know, in the you know pre-internet days when there were bulletin board systems, uh, someone found a printout of one of my discussions with some other fans talking about the first couple episodes of Next Generation. Mm. And uh, thankfully, uh, my position was, you know, a lot of these negative reactions are, you know, equal to some of the negative reactions that some fans had about the original series. Um, Let's give it a chance. Mm. You know, especially after Naked Now had come out and people were saying, well, this is exactly the same as the uh, uh, TOS episode, uh, Naked Time. And what are they trying to do? This is just uh, this is just silly. They're trying to, you know, re, uh, you know, redo the same thing over and over again. I said, give it a chance. This is this is a way to get to know the characters. And and, uh, so I I was extremely level headed, much more level headed than I am now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You were younger. I was young. I didn't know. Um, But uh, it was it was very strange because the same sort of bits of uh, of possessory feelings about mm. Star Trek were coming out right. that, uh, you know, how dare they do something uh, with Star Trek that I don't like. Right, right. And, you know, all that has certainly been amplified a million times now. 
But I think all those feelings still existed even during the original show. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you, it was. I had a, a, an interesting introduction to Next Generation as well. I mean, I'd seen the casting and 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 didn't really know or recognize anyone, and uh, you know, uh, was you know still cautiously optimistic. I was excited that Star Trek was coming back to television. The first run syndication thing spooked me. In retrospect, it was obviously the best thing that could have happened mm-hmm. because I don't think that show would have lasted seven years on the network. No way. Um, so I think it was a good thing. Um, and uh, I was out in California for the first time. Uh, and I happened to be on the Paramount lot for reasons I won't go into. Uh, um, Just happened to be there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was. Uh, I was uh, trying to get a job from uh, the late Gary David Goldberg, mm-hmm. and um, who I had met had been interested in hiring me for something. He eventually ended up optioning a script of mine many years later. But um, the point of this being, where I was at the commissary um, after my meeting or whatever, and they were shooting Farpoint, mm-hmm. and so all the um, extras were taking lunch and they were all in Starfleet uniforms and I got such a thrill because here I was on the Paramount lot I was in college you know and you know it was the uniforms were very redolent of the Star Trek the motion picture costumes it was really exciting you were particularly excited about the male scant uniforms no that that did nothing for me (laughs) but uh, I thought the uniforms were 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 fantastic and uh, it was really cool but what's interesting is so then whatever it was uh, a few weeks later a few months later it it premieres and I remember we got a um, we rented a VCR for our our um, house or at a college so we could tape the episodes every mm-hmm. week because none of us had a VCR and so we went to like rent a center and we right. rented a VCR and we all huddled around our 19 inch CRT TV and uh, watched Farpoint and god you know we wanted to like it so much yeah. Star Trek the next generation is beaming aboard the airwaves all the wonder the excitement the drama of Gene Roddenberry's original Space Odyssey. Welcome to the Enterprise. With all new adventures from the 24th century. With an all new Enterprise. This is nothing like any vessel I've seen before. And an all new crew. Starfleet veteran Captain Picard. Commander Riker, executive officer. Chief Medical Officer Crusher. And her brilliant son, Wesley. Lieutenant Commander Data, an android. The telepathic Troy. Security Officer Yar. Geordi. A man with unique vision. And Klingon officer, Worf. Shields and deflectors up, sir. Go to yellow alert. Their continuing mission, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Let's see what's out there. Don't miss the all-new television adventures of Star Trek, the next generation. You know, at the end, the solar starfish show up, and we're just like, well, you know, that was a little Squire Gothos, and that was a little this, and that was a lot. But, okay, it has potential. Not bad. It's not awful. D. Yeah. Kelly was wonderful, you know. Yeah, and uh, it has it has potential. It certainly looked good. It, it looked good, and especially on a nineteen inch well, yeah, sure. CRT television in low def, as my wife would say. And um, so, uh, you know, it had potential. You know, next week I had a similar reaction to Naked. Now it's like, why are you telling this story now? The whole point of Naked Time is to sort of reveal layers to our characters, right. and it's like the second week we don't know our characters, right. so revealing these hidden layers doesn't quite make sense. Um, and not to mention it's a terrible episode. Um, and we find out that the characters really didn't have any layers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were pretty much, uh, okay, they're pretty much like they are when they're drunk. You know, by the time regular. you get to, to Code of Honor, you know, look, a lot of people say, oh, that's the Amos and Andy sort of racist episode. Yeah. I didn't really see it at the time. I think that's a stretch. 
And I was so happy it had a Fred Steiner score and there was some action and, right. you know, they beat Go to a Planet. It was like, oh, okay, well, at least yeah. it's something going on. Maybe the show's actually going to get... It was dumb, but it wasn't offensive. Yeah. At least I, to me. But it really wasn't until, um, you know, one zero zero one zero zero one one zero. I don't know what the name of that episode right. is. So a lot of ones, a lot of zeros. But... Um, that I said, oh wow, that that was a really great episode. It was very interesting. You yeah, know, it was a good science playing. fiction idea. The binars are a great yeah. alien civilization. Um, you know, Frakes gets to show off his trumpeting trombone, trombone skills. Yes, and um, uh, there's a lot I like about that episode. And that was the first episode where I really said, oh, okay, the show has 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 real pretend. Right. And Heart of Glory at the time was also, you know, right. people who just say, oh, the first season, the second season are terrible. There are little small gems to be mined in those in those seasons that people are very quick to forget about um, yeah well there's you know there's about as much uh, good uh in those first two seasons as there are in the third season of the original series yeah yeah but here here's the funny thing so um you know i'm in college i'm entering the college paper and we get this press kit one day comes in um for star trek the next generation and it says um it says, uh, here's 20, I should have brought this, I could read you the whole list, I still have it. <laughs> you know, 100 ways that we suggest you cover the new Star Trek series. And it was like, you know, uh, write about how the real science impacts, you know, on the science of Star Trek and, you know, all this stuff. And then buried it like number 32, visit the set and interview the cast. It was oh. like buried in there. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so I call the uh, the publicist and I said, you know, I'm a Brandeis University uh, student newspaper and I'd like to come with a photographer, my roommate. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> I don't think he'd ever shot a photo in his life. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm interested in doing stuff. I said, well, we'd love to have you. I said, well, I'd love to come. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I basically, uh, they set up a flight and fly me out and I spent two days on the set of... Uh, um, the next generation, they were shooting too short a season with Clayton Rohner. Yes. Uh, who, uh, who um, ironically ended up, w- was the uh, boyfriend of Audie Anglin, who later started in Free Enterprise. And um, I was on the set, and that was where I literally interviewed the entire cast, met the entire cast. And uh, and you, know, you set forward on your journey to become America's foremost tracks. I did. That was the very, that was, that was... You know, that led to me writing for Cinefantastic, yeah. and it led to me doing these other sci-fi magazines, ultimately um, doing 50-Year Mission. Um, in fact, there are some interviews from that set visit. I had to, when I was writing 50-Year Mission, go back and in the, in the garage and find these old cassettes that I had saved, saved. And everybody's always saying, why do you save all this stuff? Because I might I, need I it. I might need it someday. <laughs> and sure enough, the problem is I didn't have a cassette recorder, so I had to go on Amazon oh and get a goodness. cassette recorder to transcribe it. And listening to me interview people when I was... 18, 19 years sure. old is very difficult. I had a very difficult time having to listen to me because I mean I remembered. I, I'm still horrified. I think at one point I I said to, Sha, uh, to to Patrick Stewart, you know, it was the end of a long day, and I interviewed most of the cast, and I said, you know, and he, at the time he he'll admit it, he was a dick. Right. Um. You know, it was really after a while he started to loosen up thanks to the rest of the cast and he right. became a lovely guy and learned to have fun but at the time he was very full of himself and just yeah. very serious so I said you know will the show have sort of the operatic larger than life kind of uh, Shakespearean uh, you know drama that 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 Shatner brought to the or something like that and and he says what are you saying that Shakespeare is broad and he was just is that how you're using Shakespeare as an adjective to describe and it was like oh my god I boy oh. I put my foot in my mouth. so I like I intentionally could not never listen to that tape again um but um but it was great because it was I also I think you ought to bring in that tape and I, we ought to 
we play put, on the put podcast. It on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I'd be, I'd be willing to do that at this point. I, I, I you know, I, it's funny because I, you know, I, that was where I met John Frakes, um, and he had this radiant pink bathrobe that he would wear between takes because everyone hated the uniforms. Sure. They were so uncom- so between takes, he would go back to his trailer, put on this He'd, right He'd pink bathrobe. the top off, and, and yeah. And I remember when I was interviewing him, he was wearing the pink bathrobe. It was oh like, my oh my god, it was it was so funny. And, you know, obviously I've known Frakes now for many years and we worked together on The Librarians on a right. couple episodes and, you know, I, I just find him delightful. He hasn't changed a bit. He's as warm and sociable as ever. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, uh, uh, you That's know, just, a Star Trek The Motion Picture quote for he, all, he, you, all you people. Who but he truly, he's just him. a lovely, lovely man. He always was and has remained so. Um, but uh, I remember we were sitting on set shooting this episode of Librarians and I just turned to him and I said, i got a question for you, John. He goes, yeah, what is it, Mark? He said, Whatever happened to that pink bathroom? He started laughing. That's it was hilarious. like dying. It was like he was like uh, he just. He said, "I have no idea." I said, "You know, if you still had it, you probably could sell it on eBay for a lot of money." Because <laughs> you know, Mark, I think you're right. <laughs> My goodness. Um, but um, but you know, I interviewed the entire cast that day. I did not like Denise, uh, I, uh, who also seemed to have a chip on her shoulder. Um, it's funny. Lavar is another person who, at the time, and he was a big original Star Trek fan. So I thought he was going to, you know, wasn't super friendly. But Arguably, it, he was the most known name out of that Absolutely. Yeah. And in the years subsequent, he could not have been more charming. Right. And I just think he was under a lot of pressure. Sure. You know, and, and I think they were doing a lot of interviews and they were sick of doing interviews at the time because I found him after that to be just charming. Um, and everyone else was terrific. I mean, you know, Marina was happy to have a gig. And so she mm-hmm. knew how to work it. And, um, um you know, John, as I said, was great, and 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 you know, Brent just super funny. Right. Uh, you know, he really was. You know, you could see the the Groucho marks. He was just glad to have him. a gig. He was glad to have a gig, and and um, it was really, I, I it was really interesting for me because I was also on the set for the finale for All Good Things. Right. So to have, and I'd been on the set many times in between, but to 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 think and to I bookend it that. What way. was nice was when I was, you know, because I was covering it for Cinefantas or Sci-Fi Universe at that point, um, I was able to sort of talk to them about what it was like in the beginning and compare and sort of contrast where they were at the end of the journey and where they were at the beginning of the journey. It was really fascinating, and I felt I had, in a way, gone on this journey with them. But um, I do remember it was really hard sort of doing some of those interviews because, of course, I'd only seen Encounter Farpoint and Naked Now when I came out to um, visit them on set. I'd only seen two episodes, right. you know, and uh, they were already like six in. And, and it's really funny because I, I remember the first thing, very vividly, the first thing uh, that um, we did when we got there was the publicist after they introduced themselves. They introduced us to Mike Akuda, who gave us the set tour. For, so Mike, who of course doesn't remember this, uh, but I remember vividly, you know, took us around the sets and I, I couldn't get over just how remarkable the, the sets were because you really did feel like you were on the Enterprise sure. because the corridors connected and, you know, into the different sets and everything. And, of course, this was the same stage where they had filmed many of the movies. Yeah, it so, was the same layout as the Enterprise in the in the movies. Well, yeah, and they, they were using, they redressed a lot of the same, a lot of the same sets. This, yeah. And then ultimately the movies would redress next generation right. sets um, because they never spent enough money on these That's things. Correct. Um, but it was a really great experience. And... Uh, I I do feel there was a sense that most of us were pulling for the show to work. You know, nobody wanted to see it fail. 
No. Um, you wanted to see the movies continue, you know, with the original cast, but you also were hoping, and uh, you know, the next generation would find its way. And it really isn't until that third season when Michael Pillar joins the staff that it does begin sure. to come together. Well, it, it becomes something of its own, right? Yeah. And and you know, we'll talk more about uh, next generation in future episodes. Absolutely, and. Uh, it, it does begin to emerge from the shadow of the original and stand on its own two feet. And that's when Next Generation, I think, works best, when it's its own series and its own, uh, and is not trying to do what uh, the original show did. Because, you know, Next Generation was never able to do humor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there were a lot of things that it, it, the original show did better. You know, certainly we all know the scores of the original show are uh, available in a beautiful box set from La La Land uh, for the original show has, mm-hmm. has never been topped. There was a fear of going, um, I, I'm reluctant to say big and bombastic because Star Trek uh, in its original incarnation could be extremely subtle as well. Sure. Um, and uh, But then you really do start to find, uh, the start show starts to find itself and go on to enormous success. But it was it was remarkable because there was definitely a sense that the show could go either way. And it, it's funny because both NBC and Fox were interested in acquiring the show, but they wouldn't commit. This was in an era where NBC committed to two years of amazing stories in which right. they had committed to none. Right. And uh, so no one was willing to, to make the commitment that Paramount wanted. And because of the huge startup costs, they couldn't afford the show to be canceled right. after 13 episodes. Right. So what do they do? They, they greenlight it themselves for first-run syndication and sell you know, what's called barter, you know, barter syndication right. where they get to sell a bunch of the ads. And, and the local, local stations get to have get a, to, a certain amount of ads yeah. too, yeah. And, and it sort of kicked off because until then you only had shows like Jeopardy and um, uh, Wheel of Fortune in syndication. This kicked off the age, the golden age of so the one-hour drama. For the next 10 years, you sort of had a huge amount of these first-run syndicated series that paved the way for Deep Space Nine, but there were a lot of other shows, Babylon 5, to the PTEN network, which was Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. ad hoc. Uh, you had um, also Paramount trying to capture lightning in a bottle again with um, Friday the 13th, the series, mm-hmm. which was an anthology horror series, and, of course, War of the Worlds, which was created by Sam and Greg Strangis, which prepared concurrently with um, Star Trek. Now, the interesting thing about Sam and Greg Strangis is that Paramount had originally had them develop Next Generation right. before Roddenberry involved, got involved because you know, people don't realize that they did not want Roddenberry involved because he was a handful. And uh, I don't know why anyone would think that. <laughs> and uh, they developed a, 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 a you know a Bible, and and they were pretty far along when um, Paramount had met with uh, Gene, and who was irate that anyone else would do the show. I said, well. You've never, you know, what, you know, what about you? You've always said you'd never do it. Well, I'm not going to let anybody else do it. And he ends up doing Star Trek, and basically Strangus, uh, Strangus, the dad and the uh, and the son are, are shown the door. They end up doing War but of we'll, the Worlds. But we'll talk more about that when we talk about the, the untraveled journeys of Star Trek. Yes, indeed we will, which is a future episode where we'll be talking about the uh, abandoned JFK Star Trek II premise, um, Planet of the Titans, and, of course, where Kirk fights Jesus on the bridge of the Enterprise. Uh, All fascinating stories that never saw the light of a projector bulb, but those are for future voyages. For now, this has been Darren Docterman. Darren Docterman. I remember your name. And, I was and, going for the dramatic Shatner's pause. Mark A. Altman. I am indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here on Inglorious Trexperts, and we'll uh, hope you'll join us next week for an all-new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. Wow, that was good. You got that little uh, yeah. sound effect in there. Thank you.
sweetheart, all my prayers are for you. Good night, sweetheart, I'll be watching all.